Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, we thank you that you have delivered to us your eternal word. And your word is given to us that we may grow thereby and be conformed more into the image of your Son. We pray that as we read the scripture, as we hear the word preached, that you would change us for the better, that we would uphold the image in which we were created, that we may reflect your glory and the glory of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. We so ask these things in his name. Amen. Let's read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then turn to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and we reach at the end of the chapter to verse 25. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Edekel. It is the one which goes towards east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the men, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Now, after God had created, the question that comes up in this chapter is what happened to God's creation. The passage begins with the title of the Toledot, the generations of. Here is what happened to God's creation. God creates rational beings to serve him. After he created the heavens and the earth, and after he created places where these things would reside and separated things in their proper places, he created rational beings. The first two verses of the section provide the setting for the creation of human life. It's where God's going to place them. The world at this point wasn't growing. The world had yet to flourish. It had yet to be fertile. Instead, the Lord was preparing for growth. But more important, when we join these first few verses with verse 7, this part of the passage plays a somewhat subordinate role because the point here is not that things were not growing before the earth could flourish under God's blessing. God focused his attention on man, the epitome of creation. This is human life. Those he created in his image. And the clauses here foreshadow two important notes. Rain and tilling the ground. There wasn't any rain yet, and there was no one to till the ground. The ground anticipates expulsion from the garden and the curse in which the ground was cursed. And the mention of rain anticipates the great flood, which we'll read about in chapter 6. One of the things to notice is that God's designation here is now the Creator called the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And what's important to notice is that the Creator-Creature distinction is now becoming more intimate. God creates man, and as a result of becoming this Creator of man, He is now called the Lord God. And it demonstrates more of a personal nature that God is going to have. There's an emphasis on covenantal, personal relationship. His creative act is portrayed here by the word designed or formed, as if it's the same verb used of the potter who creates or forms or shapes the clay. And it has an anticipation to it. What will God do? The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Man, or Adam, in this section refers to the first human, Adam, but also will refer, in the rest of the Old Testament, also to humankind. And he created him from mud. Remember, the mist was coming up from the ground, and it was wetting the land, and God took that dust, that mud, and created Adam. And since the first man came from the ground, he and all human beings are inseparably bound to it. Uh, Job and Isaiah and later God in Genesis 3.19, he says, dust you are. We are made of dust. The psalmist says our frames are made of dust. It implies creatureliness. But it's not just that we're dust. The text tells us that God 
breathed into the dust a breath of life. To the body of dust was imparted the nephesh. The word for breath is used in the Bible uh, for life that is given to man. It's never used in that way for animals, even though God had created animals from the dust of the ground as well. In man, there was something more. It brings an animation to him. It brings spiritual understanding to him. It brings a functioning conscience to him. And in this breathing comes the image of God as man. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It doesn't say that the image of God is in man. It says that man is made in God's image. The combining here of the physical body and the divine breath produces the living being, as the text says. So Israel would see humankind or mankind as created with great care, great planning, it would have the capacity to serve the Lord in a specific way. And without these notes on the manner and likeness of men to God, and of God's providing men and women with these spiritual capacities, the rest of the chapter really wouldn't carry as much force. Because it, the man would be like an animal. But he's not. He's different. He's made by divine counsel. Man is placed in an exalted position because of that. Now, image and likeness. They're made in God's image and in his likeness. They're synonymous words used to describe in what way man is a reflection of God. In no way is man God, but he is a reflection of God. A reflection in a mirror reflects what a man does, but is not man. It's a reflection of the man. God creates man and is delighted in him because he is to be a reflection of himself. When God looks upon Adam, when he looks upon Eve, he is delighted with them. And he calls them very good. They are a reflection of his own character, of his own attributes. Image and likeness refer to four things which reflect God. Intellectual, moral and spiritual righteousness and holiness and dominion over the animals. Now, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the animals. That is the image of God as man is constituted. God delights himself, as it is seen through man's dim reflection of who he is. As man reflects God, so God delights in that reflection. If man does not reflect God, then God is not delighted in that reflection. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. With dominion, God says, let them have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. Having dominion over God's creation as a vice-regent, is what Adam was doing in the garden as a priest, as he was a priest in God's sanctuary. Literally, the word dominion means to tread. 
men are to reflect the God quality of sovereignty. That's why the kings in the Old Testament were called little gods. They are referred to as gods. They reflect the quality of sovereignty by utilizing their spiritual, moral, and intellectual righteousness over creation. That is what reflects God's character. That's also a key. The righteous rule. Ruling in holiness was Adam's responsibility. That is what he was supposed to do in the garden. And if he continued to do that, he would reflect God's character. He would reflect who God is and God would continue to delight in him. And that's the first section that comes up in the chapter thus far up to verse 8. The second section demonstrates that now we have this man and this woman created, or actually, the way that Moses lays this out, he creates Adam, and then he demonstrates that the woman is created. Humankind has the responsibility to keep God's commandments in order to enjoy life. That's verses 8 to 17. There are abundant provisions that are given them. They're given food by herbs and trees. God specifically gives them the food that grows for their food. God provides for their sustenance. But it also sets the setting for the covenant, for the probation. The purpose of the lavish description of the garden inevitably leads us to see the commandment. That though he has this wonderful place that he's going to place Adam, Adam can enjoy it. It has all that he needs to live. It has food. It has sustenance. But he must not eat the forbidden fruit. He must not eat of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. So the focus of the description quickly turns to the trees in the garden because it's part of the covenant that God makes with Adam in the garden. He is then to render to God obedient service in verses 15 to 17. The vocabulary in verses 15 to 17 points to the spiritual nature of man's responsibility there. The word is translated, he placed him there, but it really comes from the word rest. Just like the idea of the Sabbath. Placed, but the root idea being rest, demonstrates to us that in light of Genesis' teaching on Sabbath rest, we should understand that God has placed Adam in that place, that he may serve it, in the garden, serve God, and keep it in the garden before God, which is a rest. It's his enjoyment before God. The two verbs themselves, to serve and to keep the garden, are used throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the rest of what Moses writes, for spiritual service. That they are spiritually to serve God in keeping and serving God. Keeping is used for keeping the commandments and taking heed to obey God's word. Serving describes the worship and service of the Lord. It's the highest privilege that someone can have. And here, God created Adam for that very purpose. Whatever Adam was to do in the garden, and there's no reason to doubt that physical activity was involved because he was serving God and keeping the garden, it was described in terms of spiritual service to the Lord. It was all described as 
serving God. Adam was the priest of God's garden, the sanctuary of God in that way. And then in verse 16, we have the command. The major word there for commandment, commanded him. Here's the first commandment given in the Bible, and it concerns life or death for good or evil. With God's commands, there are positive blessings and negative prohibitions, all surrounding the covenant structure that God gives Adam here, as we will deal more with the covenant of works when we talk about Genesis 3. But God had placed Adam in this covenant to work before him in a probationary period, demonstrate the reality that he, in the image of God, would uphold and fulfill everything that God would require of him, made in his image. In the passage, all his earthly goods, all the pleasures, they're right there at man's disposal. I mean, the, the, there's a stress in the Hebrew there that says, you can eat to your heart's content. You can enjoy the garden to the heart's content. Except this one tree. Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The infinitive here strengthens the certainty of death. You shall surely die. If you eat it, the tree of life was a means of preservation in this blissful state. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam was created with a spiritual capacity to serve God and was provided with God's bounty. He must therefore live obedient before God as God would have him. His life, his very life is at stake if he does not serve him well. That's section two in this chapter. Moses adds in a third section. Adam was given a helper in serving God and keeping his commandments. He wasn't there to do it by himself. Man's complement and marriage is set here. God intended that man and the woman being a spiritual functional unity, walking in integrity, serving God and keeping his commandments. Ah, here they're fulfilling following the image. If this pattern prevailed, the nation would live and would prosper under God's good hand of blessing. But if it doesn't, they would fall and they would be cursed. Moses brings out in verses 18 to 20 that man's incomplete. Adam was made, but he was made incomplete. The narrative begins with this striking announcement by God that man is not yet as God planned him to be. Adam is alone. And that state of aloneness isn't good. It's the only thing thus far said in the creation narrative that isn't good. So far, everything had been very good. But it's not good that man is alone. And as he began to function as God's representative, naming the animals with sovereignty over them, he became very aware of his solitude. Being alone is a negative concept, for the full life is found in community. As Ecclesiastes tells us, when prisoners are bad, they put them in solitary confinement, away from others. That's a bad thing. God sees in even the pre-fallen state of man that it's a bad thing to be alone. So he has to complete him. And in verses 21 to 25, he gives him a helper. And a helper is not a demeaning term. God is actually called a helper. 
He's called helper in Exodus 18, in Deuteronomy 33, in 1 Samuel 7, in Psalm 20, in Psalm 46. He is the helper of his people. The word essentially describes one who provides what is lacking. And here, man is lacking something. Man cannot do this alone. Adam cannot be alone. The man was created in such a way that he needs the help of a partner. And so God created Eve. Delitz, a German theologian, said, Human beings cannot fulfill their destiny except in mutual assistance. And he's right. So God created a helper that was suitable or corresponding to him. And the word means according to his opposite or counterpart. It means that the woman would share in man's nature. That is, whatever the man received at creation, she would have as well. And it makes clear in Genesis 1.27 that the image of God is male and female. The man and the woman correspond physically, socially, and spiritually together. They become one flesh, complete personal community as a spiritual unity that way. Adam caps this whole passage with his commentary on the woman, stressing this relation with his flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone comment. It culminates between woman and man. And there's a play on the Hebrew words there. The woman is taken out of man. The point of Adam's jubilant cry is that she completes him. And this goal in partnership is a blessing before God. Moses makes a commentary. This is why a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. They become one flesh. The divine plan for marriage then is one man and one woman becoming one flesh and leaving, uh, living together in their integrity. That's what they're supposed to do before God. And by doing that, they fulfill the image. For the sake of the wife, the man leaves the strong bond of his parents and he unites with her. And Moses comments in the final verse that the two were naked and they had no shame. And this all of this points to Moses' point for the people of Israel reading this. It shows how God created Adam and Eve with a specific design and a moral capacity to serve God. Warning the Israelites that before them was life or death, depending upon their obedience to his commandments. And stresses the community of marriage, and fellowship, spiritual union, for their joy and helpfulness to one another to serve God, they demonstrate the image of God. And when we look at the passage, all of that passage is what the text is about, those three particular sections. But I want to focus to the doctrine of the image of God as man, man made in God's image. He's the pinnacle of creation. He's given the most prominent place, the highest place in the creative order. In this way, Moses is telling us that man is special to God. There's no other created being which is higher than man. Some might say the angels are higher. They might go to Philippians 2 and, and, and use that. But in this case, that's talking about after the fall. Here, in Genesis, we're talking about before the fall. God took special care and attention to create man and conferring, even in the divine council, that unlike the rest of creation that he just spoke and made, mankind is special. There's something about them. What is it? Well, it's that 
They were created in his image. Adam was the first man, as 1 Corinthians 15.5 states. And Eve is called the mother of all the living, as Genesis 3.20 states. Adam was made of dust, and Eve was made of Adam from a more nobler matter than man himself, actually, she was made. Demonstrates the respect and honor that should be given her. He gave them spirits. God is called the father of spirits in Hebrews 12.9. And Zechariah 12.1 says that he forms the spirit of man within him. It is not said that man has the image of God in him. Rather, it is said that man is created in the image of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Man is the image of God. He does not like a container or a jar that has something in him. He actually is God's image. Now God gave Adam the responsibility to rule creation as a reflection of his image. Which is what we call theologically, his original righteousness. So when we define what it is that the image actually is, it's divided into four things. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion. That is what the image of God is in men. As men. Knowledge. Colossians 1.10 That you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Men, redeemed men, are to do that. Adam had clear and perfect apprehensions of God, of God's nature, of God's perfection. He knew God perfectly. For us, as redeemed men, we are, as Colossians say, in knowledge to be increasing. To be increasing in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's part of the restoration of the image. Secondly, righteousness. Ephesians 4.24 And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness. In that same way, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 says, God made man upright. He made him Righteous and perfect. They were totally and completely endowed with the ability to keep God's law in righteousness. That's what righteous means. To walk along the line of righteousness. To not go to the right. To not go to the left. To walk along that, that very narrow road. And being given the ability, he knew every part of his duty before God. And everything that needed to be accomplished before him. Adam was made perfect in righteousness, and thus we, as being renewed in that image, that we are to be upright, and we are to be righteous. Third, holiness. Not only was Adam made with knowledge of God, for he knew God perfectly, not only was he made righteous and perfect, but he was also made holy, which is a consequence of being righteous. Ephesians 4.24 again. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's comment on Adam. He was made righteous. He was made holy. They were unaffected by sin. They didn't have any wicked appetite. 
They loved what God loved and they hated what God hated. They were priests in God's sanctuary. They were naked and they weren't ashamed. They were holy. And in this way, man was not created as some blank slate to experience and gather information, but he was created in righteousness. He was created with knowledge. He was created in and holy. He was morally endowed so that he could keep God's commandments, so that he could serve God, so that he could follow God. So he had knowledge to do this. He was righteous and thus as a result holy. And then God gave him something specific to do, to have dominion. Adam's task was to subdue creation in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God does all things by his powerful hand. He's sovereign. He has dominion over everything. What God does, he does through his omnipotent power. Adam has to use his limited power, his God-given rule, to rule over creation in a way which reflects God's glory. He has to rule in such a way that God would be glorified in his rule. The priest of God should rule the sanctuary of his dominion with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. If Adam had done that, he would have never fallen. If Adam would have protected the garden in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the animals, dominion over the serpent, he would never have fallen. Man, as a rational being, was placed in an earthly paradise. And as a rational and religious being, he was subject to divine law. And as a social being, he was given human fellowship. He wasn't created for laziness or idleness. He was created to work before God. As Adam and Eve reflected these attributes, they reflected the character of God. They upheld the law of God as they were so instructed to do, as God had told them that they must do, unless you shall surely die. They were immortal beings endowed in this way with the breath of life, the soul, and death for disobedience, for not acting in accordance with God's image, was a punishment for sin. Death was physical and spiritual, and sin itself brought death into the world as a result of their disobedience in rejecting to reflect the perfect image of God in man. And as a result, we find we must be renewed by the mediator who comes because of their fall. It's the only way that we're able to reflect the image. We cannot reflect the image of God any other way than the ministry through the Spirit of Christ as a result of Christ's work. We are fallen. We have to be renewed back to the image, which is why Romans 8 tells us that we are conformed to his image. Now, that's what the image of God is. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion. And that is applicable to each one of us as we live and breathe here in our time and in our day. Man is a soul. He spiritually, in, in an immortal nature, has a soul that will never die. He's physical. We're physical beings where we have a rational and moral nature. We're intellectual, so we have to have knowledge to be able to do things. 
We're material, so we have the ability to move and subdue creation before God. Here, the Christian relates to how Adam was created. The Christian can relate to this passage, to the teachings of the New Testament that come even further with some of these ideas concerning what the image of God is and how we are to follow it. Accordingly, when we are regenerated, we become what? New creations. As Adam was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the animals, when we are regenerated, Paul calls us a new image, a new creation. We have the spiritual capacity to serve God and obey his commandments. And they, too, see the communal assistance with marriage as a vital part to making all of that happen, to making it work, meeting the design of the Creator. For us to be able to complete all of that would then demonstrate, even in this renewed, regenerated personage that we are, a new creation. The image raised again, that we might be able to reflect the glory of God. Paul says that we should so be endowed with such things that even when we eat something as menial as a hamburger, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. In knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion. We have to reflect this. The mediator who came for us, Christ, who is the model man, restores that image in us. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ is the model man, produced by the immediate divine power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, made of her substance, but without sin, positively predetermined to holiness. In his mother's womb, he was called that holy thing. Luke 1.35 Just as Adam was created as that holy thing first in creation, so Christ was created as that holy thing when he came. Men, you and I then, are recreated in the image of God and are being brought back to the former condition through the work of the mediator. We are brought back to the position that Adam was in through what Jesus did. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed, how? In knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3. We are being renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the animals through regeneration and sanctification through Christ. That is why Paul says, don't do all of these things that sin demonstrates. Rather, put on the new man. The new man is created in knowledge, going back to the way Adam was created. And the only way that this happens, as he says, is because Christ is all in us. He is everything to us. Without him, it would be impossible. Ephesians 4, 20-24 But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be what? Renewed, the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which was created according to God. How? in true righteousness and holiness. The same way Adam was created. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The Bible doesn't only say that we're made 
the image of God, but also conformed into the image of God because we're fallen and into the image of Christ. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, the perfect model man, that he might be the firstborn. He is the first perfect recreated Adam that is unfallen and sinless. And we then are recreated in his image and conformed to him. He is the firstborn among many brethren. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, we are taught not to increase in the image of God, but increase to the stature and fullness of Christ, which will then conform us to his image. That is not to the Son as the second person of the Trinity, but that of the Messiah, the incarnate Word of God. He is the image of the Father. And so as we are fulfilling or coming to the fullness of Christ in our daily walk, in our life, we are then becoming more conformed to Him and becoming His image. Now why is this important? Why is the image of God in that way so important? Well, it's actually very simple. God is most concerned with himself and the demonstration of his image. We should learn how all God's love may be resolved into his love for himself. Adam reflected that which was very good. And as a result of being a direct creation of God, God saw that it was very good because God had created him. God delighted himself in Adam as being a direct image of who he was, a reflection of himself. That doesn't make God vain, because God must, out of necessity, enjoy that which is most pleasing to him. God must enjoy that which is most pleasing to him. That's himself. It's no other thing. So when we talk about man as the image of God, it's impossible to escape the reality that man is a reflection of who God is. God's wonderfulness is really the topic when we talk about the image of God and who we are before him. Man has been gifted with being a steward of such a gift and should use it so wisely that God delights to see us reflect him. Because he delights in himself. As a matter of fact, he only delights in himself. And that's all he delights in. What would God delight in you if Christ were not present in you? What would he delight in? Take Christ out of me. What would God delight in me? Would he delight in anything? Fallen man? Not at all. His love to the creature, to Adam, for example, is only his inclination to glorify himself. He desires to do that and to communicate to himself the excitedness that he has about who he is. He desires to see his delight in himself glorify and in himself communicated. There is his delight in the act and the fruit. In the act of it, 
God delights in himself. And the fruit of it, we are sanctified. We are sanctified. We become more like him. And he delights in that because it's more of himself. The act is the exercise of his own perfection. And the fruit is himself expressed and communicated. Christ then gives men the ability to again allow God to delight in them by renewing them to reflect his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the earth. Though men are fallen, they're still created in God's image, but it's ruined. It's destroyed as a result of the fall. It's marred. It has to be restored. It's not taken away. It's ruined. Christ, the model man made in God's image as the only mediator between God and man, restores that image back to its rightful state. And when the image is restored, then men, again, as servants of Christ and God, demonstrate a resolve to act in accordance with that image. Why? So that God can see himself. So that God can act upon that with delight. So God can see and be pleased with himself in them. If you've been renewed, you have to ask yourself this question. How do you reflect the image of God? And conforming of Christ to the world around you. Answering that will determine whether God delights in himself in you. Is God delighted with you? He can be delighted with us. He delight, he's, he's delighted with us when we reflect him and he sees it. And that's our goal. In every area and aspect of our life, we should be concerned with God delighting in us. We often neglect thinking this way because we use the excuse that we're fallen. Uh, we definitely need Jesus, and we need to rely on God's perfect model man to make us perfect and send his spirit that we might be filled with perfection from God himself. But we can't use it as an excuse. We can never say, oh, well, I'm fallen, so there it is. God has created us in such a way, and he has renewed us in Christ in such a way that we would reflect his glory and his attributes. And here is the kicker. We can do it because God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. What do you do then so that God delights himself in you? He looks at you and he's delighted. Do you see Christ in you? Does he see Christ in you? If you're unable to see Christ clearly in you, though you might be regenerated, God can still see himself in you very clearly. For he knows himself, and he knows himself perfectly, and he can see the dim reflections of himself. That's why Christ says, the, brood the bruised reed and the smoking flax, he won't break the bruised reed, he won't quench the smoking flax. Any little glimmer of God's image, demonstrated and reflected. He looks and he sees it with great eagerness and desires to see it in us, cultivated and enhanced to illuminate more of himself in us. But we must work that we might see that image reflected as well. Our usefulness in the kingdom is a direct result of cultivating 
that spiritual desire and disposition for his glory and demonstrating that image. The more such things are cultivated, the more you are conformed to his image and the more you will reflect him. And it should be the aim of every renewed being to reflect more of God and of Christ. Your work, your play, your recreation, your family involvement, your stewardship, your possessions, your devotions, everything. Everything that you do all point to consider the worth of the creature and its ability to reflect God and his attributes. Everything that you do should demonstrate God's image. Do you squander it? Do you cultivate it? Can you see Christ's image in you? Can you see God's image in you? And even in the menial things that you do, why is it that you can or can't? We should use the very reason that we've been created in the image of God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness with dominion. We should use that as a pause of reflection so that we, even as we read this morning as Isaac was out in the field meditating, we might see how we are reflecting, how well or how not well we are reflecting the image of God back to him. How much does God delight in us? How much of Christ is in us? How sanctified are we? How much more sanctified must we be? How good are we in such and such an area? How bad are we in such and such a sin? In all of those things, you see the image of God holds great weight in the demonstration of our sanctification alone. Genesis the first few chapters of Genesis hold so much information in them about the beginnings and root of everything that is about the Christian life and who we are and why we are like we are. We should be thinking along these lines of taking the image of God and trying to our utmost to be great polished mirrors before God. So when he looks down to us, his face, so to speak, is reflected perfectly when you have a mirror in your house. And in both of our homes, there are large mirrors that stand from floor to ceiling. And when there are smudges all over it, you look, you say, ooh, the mirror is dirty and it's not attractive and it needs to be cleaned. So let it be that we, made in the image of God, reflecting back his glory, would reflect it back in a way that God would look in it that we are clean, and he would see his image reflected in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with perfect dominion. May we thank Christ and ask for more of the Spirit of Christ that we would reflect his glory in all things. Let's pray. Mighty God, you have created in us a desire a renewed desire as a result of being regenerated to glorify you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we so pray, Lord, as we briefly talk about knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion as man created in God's image, that you would help each of us, Lord, regardless of what we do, whatever our profession is, whatever we do at home, Whatever we do at work, whatever we do at church, whatever we do with other people, wherever we are, regardless, we are always conscious that we are made in your image and we must reflect 
your image to the utmost, that you might be delighted in yourself when you look upon us and see yourself reflecting back. May it be that Christ would aid us and help us, that the image of God would be increased, polished, made more clear. We are, O Lord, fallen creatures. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of you. We pray that you would aid us and help us. And please, O Lord, send us more of your Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. Yet we can do it with the help of your Spirit, as your Word tells us. Send us more of your Spirit that we might be aided in whatever menial task that you've given us to do it with great dominion and with great resolve that we reflect your glory and your holiness. And we so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.